Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me in Texas is Jesse Sams. Hello. Um, Jesse is a professor uh, at uh, what's the university? Stephen F. Austin State University. It's a lot to okay. say. <laughs> Stephen F. Austin State University. Correct. I knew it was somebody's name. <laughs> yes, and just so you know, it's kind of a misnomer. It is not in Austin. <laughs> no, it's it's named after Stephen Austin is is someone from Texas history, right? Yes, um, yes, very important figure. He helped establish. I'm I'm just now learning about this because my son is in Texas history, so this is the only reason I know so much about him. Uh, I'm not from Texas originally, so yeah, he's one of the founding revolutionaries who, you know, was responsible for getting Texas from Mexico. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> and all the things that go along with that. Exactly. <laughs> yes. All right. So, uh, Jesse is on here. We've talked before a little bit, uh, I believe when we had, uh, Christine Schleier on. Um, is it Schleier or Schreier? I always get, I always get her co- name confused with the Volapük guy. But anyway, when we had Christine on, we talked a little bit about her um, teaching a class in Conlangs um, using using Conlangs, and uh, Jesse does a similar thing. So. Uh, this episode, we're going. To, I'm going to talk to uh, Jesse today and uh, discuss using conlangs in the classroom, um, as well as you know whatever comes up in, during our conversation. So, uh, before we get started, I want to say um, this podcast is funded by listeners entirely. We have a Patreon, uh, and I'm mentioning. I am working on right now revising the awards for our Patreon uh, that may have already shown up by the time this episode is posted, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm I'm still working out a couple details, so uh, watch out for that. Uh, I will be sort of posting announcements once I have uh, have figured out what I'm going to be doing there. So, Jesse. Yes. To get started with the episode, uh, can you sort of just introduce yourself as a conlanger? Um, I'm sure a lot of people will know you because you're pretty active in the Language Creation Society, or at least you were. Mm-hmm. But uh, just sort of introduce yourself, uh, maybe how you got into conlanging, what what sure. you do with it now. Sure. Um, yeah, so the first time I ever tried conlanging... Um, I was in fifth grade. Of course, I had no idea that it was called conlanging. I just was inventing my own language. Uh, but it wasn't really a language. I didn't figure that out until I took linguistics courses in college because it was really just a code for English. So, I mean, you can imagine a, an 11-year-old sitting in her room <laughs> making up words. It, it wasn't a full-fledged language. Uh, but then in graduate school, while I was working on my dissertation, I needed a creative outlet for myself. And so I decided to just write a novel just for fun. It was just for me. And in the novel, I wanted characters who spoke a different language. And so at that point, I I did have enough knowledge about language and how language worked to uh, create an actual conlang. And so um, that was my first one. And I fell in love with the process. Um, And since then, I started teaching a course whenever I got my position at SFA. Um, They allowed me to create a new course, which I called Invented Languages. And so now every time I teach that course, I create a new language along with my students because sometimes it's easy to forget how overwhelming those initial stages can be when you're creating the language. Uh, All right. So um, 
let's let's talk a little bit about your course. Um, how do you structure that course, and like, what do you teach during that course, and like, how do how are you using conlangs? Oh, definitely. Uh, so the course itself, the entire course is. Um, centered around students creating their own languages. So from beginning, first day of class to the last day of class, they are working on creating their own world, um, you know, identifying their speakers and coming up with enough social and cultural uh, tidbits of information about their world so they can really have a good foundation for their court or for their language. And then from there we go into um, learning for a lot of my students, it's their introduction to linguistics. So when I say learning about sounds, for a lot of them, they've never seen the IPA before. And so, you know, we start at very basic, here are options across, you know, natural languages. And, and um, from there, they go from sounds to grammar considerations to word building. Um, and so the entire semester, they are learning about what natural languages do so they can decide um, what they want to include in their conlang. And of course, every decision needs to make sense for the foundation they built in terms of who their speakers are and um, how they view the world. And so um, I do have some more advanced students in my class who have taken um, you know, one, two, or sometimes even four or five linguistics courses before. And those students tend to be a bit more adventurous um, with, you know, cases that we don't, that aren't the prototypical cases uh, that you see in a lot of languages, or maybe they're more willing to try um, sounds that are very different from the sounds we're more familiar with. Um, and so I do have more advanced students, but I also have very beginning students who are just now learning about linguistics and language and how to study it. So I see a wide variety of conlangs as well as a, a wide variety of ideas that they're discussing and it's quite exciting. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. From what you're saying, it sounds like it's sort of combining an intro to linguistics course. Although you do get you say you do get more advanced students, so it still appeals to people who have some linguistics. Right. And um it sounds like you do a little bit of sort of sociolinguistics as well with that. Yes, and a bit of typology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All mixed together. That that's a good description of it. Mhm. Mm um just sort of generally, uh we can talk talk about what you do specifically in your course too, but um do you feel like those are sort of useful things that you could can teach through conlanging. What what generally topics do you think are useful for teaching uh, using uh, a, a conlang project? Because definitely conlanging covers a lot of linguistics. Yes. But like, there's still, to me, places where it's more applicable than others. For example, like my like my dissertation involves a lot of like experimental phonetics and I'm like mm. conlangs is not going to really do much for phonetics. <laughs> right. Um and really I think the most you can learn about phonetics especially as a, a beginning student is when they have to think um for my students who have non-human speakers they have to really make those connections between the anatomy of their speaker and what sounds would be possible for them. Um, and so I think it's good for the articulatory side of phonetics, but I can't imagine <laughs> it would be um, as helpful for other parts of phonetics. Um, so yeah, so understanding the connections between the anatomy of our speaking organs is definitely a connection that they make. I think for um, what I've seen based on my own experiences of teaching the course, I think that using conlanging is incredibly helpful, um, more like more so than other areas, I believe, uh, for morphosyntax. So understanding more about how words are, are built in languages or how they take shape in language, um, but also those grammatical principles that maybe they never really understood. For instance, you know, I had a student who was taking German at the same time they were in my course, and all of a sudden one day they just, in the middle of the lecture, just shouted, oh, that's what my teacher means. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> um, 
It's that moment where like when you have to actually be in charge of creating the cases and, and creating the sentences in your language, I think it gives you a better idea of how the puzzle works for other languages as well. And so I see a lot more, um, I see a, a lot of improvement and advancement in those areas. I think phonetics and phonology are the hardest areas to teach and to use conlangs for teaching. But when we get into, you know, data sets, um, with, with the morphology and syntax, I, I just see their awareness blossoming. And so that's, um, that's the area I'd say it's most helpful for. And I actually, I think it was the language files um, that includes an activity or an exercise at the end of the morphology chapter or I guess it would be the morphology file since it's the language files. And I think that's where I actually got the inspiration for teaching an entire course on invented languages because the activity was after they had done the morphology data sets for other languages, it was now put it into use, create your own small data set, you know, of just a, your own invented language. And then other students have to do your data set to see if you've actually followed the principle you said you'd follow. Like, did you put the plural morpheme where you said it was going to be placed? Um, and I'm pretty sure that was the language files. I know I did it with one of my classes and it was so successful. It was an intro to linguistics class. It was so successful that that's actually what inspired me to say, well, wait, what else could we learn about language by creating our own data? Uh, but yeah, I see it. It's definitely in the morphology and grammar area that I see a lot of potential for how to teach. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you look at the kinds of languages that conlangers make, it's like lots of people are real into big big morphology charts and yes. things. Yes, <laughs> yes, And yeah. I think... Um, but, like, um, I didn't know language files had an activity like that. I could see... I have thought of, like... You could do those like mini assignments in a lot of different linguistics courses, even phonology courses. I've thought about like, what if I just had, you know, I've obviously I am not teaching yet, mm -hmm. but uh, I have these thoughts running about like, what, what, once I get the academic job, if I get it, um, like, what would I do? And I'm like, you could do morphology, have them do morphology data sets like that, or or even like their own phonology problems. Uh, you could have them make sentences and and analyze them and such. But yeah, I uh, I agree with you. The morphology is is big. Mm -hmm. I know that um, uh, Matt Pearson does does a, a typology focused. Yeah. Of course. And you you said you'd do some of some of that as well. Uh maybe you could elaborate a little bit on like the typology stuff. Definitely. And also before I forget, especially since you had mentioned, you know, you're considering potential future courses of your own. Um, I also incorporate a an activity based on um based on conlanging in my history of the English language course. Um, because I give them to really help them understand like language families and having a common root, but how languages change uh, very, you know, very differently as they, they spread out. Um, I give them uh, Proto-Indo-European roots that I turn into full words. So like I create a, a short glossary and a few, in a few statements um, based on those, those old, <laughs> the oldest roots we think we can identify and um, give them to my students with set rules for, well, in this language, these sounds became that. So they end up working in groups. And at the end of the um, exercise, they compare how they would say the same thing. And we can see in, you know, this fast forward motion, how we got this variety of language, you know, the variety of languages that we do have from a single source. And so, um, you know, specifically Indo-European languages, because the, the focus is on those languages in a history of the English class. Um, but anyway, that's also another great learning experience for them to dip their toes into conlanging um, and looking at these created examples that they're coming up with um, and how language changes over time. But going back to typology, sorry, that was a, a side note, a tangent. Um, but going back to typology, um, so whenever I introduce a new area or concept, so, you know, talking about um, 
you know, for instance, when we started talking about common word orders in language, um, I present to them information uh, typologically to show these are the word orders that are most common. We learn how to use the, the walls online, so the World Atlas, uh-oh, linguistic structures, the World Atlas of Linguistic Structures. I call it walls so frequently I forget what all the little pieces stand for. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> that was right, though, right? World Atlas Lingu of Linguistic yes, Structures. Yeah, yeah, World Atlas of... Yes, yeah. and so they learn how to use that um, because I, you know, we talk a lot about how you don't have to follow the the norm or what you would expect to see in the majority of languages, but you do need to think about a reason why you would want to do something differently. And so, you know, we look at how often, for instance, the SVO word order is versus SOV. Um, we talk about the no dominant word order situation, and then we also connect that to um, research that I have I don't have them read all the original research because I don't necessarily want them to be too overwhelmed, but I, I put it into, you know, smaller documents and charts, but like, you know, Dreyer's articles where he talks about common correlations, like if you have a VO language or an OV language, you're more likely to have, you know, prepositions versus postpositions and other things. And so we look at all of that as a larger group. And I think typology is a, if I had, if I had this course as an advanced linguistics course with you know prerequisites and students who are say in a capstone style course I would use um, the conlanging course to really really get into typology because I think that's the one of the neatest things you can do with it um, in terms of more advanced studies is really understanding where these features tend to show up you can talk about geographical distribution you can talk about language families and um, connections that we tend to see among these types of languages and i think you could get into some really intricate in-depth studies but you know obviously you you need students who aren't going to be overwhelmed by all of that <laughs> who already have a background <laughs> in you know like what are cases and things like that and so so that's how I, I incorporate typology, is giving them the research to say, here's what you more frequently find in natural languages. And of course, you aren't limited to those more frequent patterns. But um, I do want my students to be mindful, um, especially because near the beginning of the semester, I always warn them, you know, don't try to throw everything into one language because it's, <laughs> you know, you get those students who are like, oh, I want every sound that English doesn't have and I want every everything that is super rare in language and you know by the end of your language you've got um you've you've got you've got a language <laughs> you've got a handful um and so um you know i ask them to be mindful of if you want something that is a rarer feature you know think about it why do you want this feature and how are you going to incorporate it and how will it fit with other features that you're creating right right it's you know teaching them to avoid the common mistake of the, the kitchen sink language where they just throw every interesting thing into one language. Yes. And don't like it's 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 fine to have lots of different features, lots of odd features, but they have to fit together in the system. Right. Um I'm really liking this discussion of like how the course needs to be structured. And how that effect is affected by like what you want to teach, because here you're talking here about your course, mm -hmm. which is meant to be like a um, an intro level course, um, a, a, interesting to people who are more advanced, but still accessible to uh, freshman students. Right, and that has to be structured in a certain way. Uh, I understand that you want to figure out also like how the language like arises from the culture so you have the students doing some world building at the beginning and then you start introducing linguistics concepts right whereas like there's uh and we have like example um one of the readings i'm going to link is is matt pearson because he has it's heavily typology focused and he has like a way of randomly determining like the class language they make. Yes. Which looks if, really cool. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, um, it involves a, uh, giant carnival wheel, which I can just picture 
these pie charts on the carnival wheel, wheel, and da, 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 right. da, da, da. maybe I'll have for to me, interview him For me, when next. I was reading that article, I had a Price is Right sort of mentality where I'm like, I view the students as, yeah, <laughs> you know, in the background and the wheels just spinning with, you're right, the da, 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 da sound. It was, it sounds very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, um, um, and I, I'm thinking like, you talked about using it in a history of English class. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that would be... That if I were to do that, if you were to do that, is a historical linguistics thing. I think uh, David Peterson did that for like a like a summer course one time, mm-hmm. and he was focused on historical because that's the way that he does conlang. Right, right. Yeah, but like, there's a few ways you could do that. You could like give them a proto language and have them make a bunch of different daughter languages, things like that. So. It's interesting, like, the diversity of possible courses that you could make from this. But uh, obviously, as an academic making a course for a university, it's going to be like you're going to take your learning goals and then you're going to be like, okay, how can I put a Conlang project that will teach these learning goals? And it's going to be different for different... uh, different courses and different people. Right, right. And that's, I feel like this could go in many directions, um, this conversation, because uh, <laughs> there's so many poss- <laughs> so many possibilities. Um, and that's, you're exactly right. You have to keep the learning goals in mind because it needs to make sense for whatever you need the students or the course to, to cover. And a lot of how I teach my course has been through trial and error. And by a lot, I really mean all of it. (laughs) Uh, Because (laughs) I didn't know. I mean, when I taught it the first two times, I didn't even know the Language uh, Creation Society existed. Um, I didn't know about a lot of the tools that were out there, um, you know, and on the market uh, as far as, you know, like books or or not even on the market, but like blogs and, you know, things that were available online. Um, I, while I am computer savvy, I am not internet savvy, I have found. (laughs) And so there are just things that I had no idea of these communities or resources. So I was truly developing the course myself for what I, I wanted students to learn linguistics, to be introduced to, uh, all the subfields of linguistics through the conlanging experience. And so that's how I approached developing the class. And I found out through trial and error, but then also through actually getting involved in the community, which is amazing. There are so many amazing people in the conlanging community um, and getting more involved and coming up with different ideas for how to structure the course. I've changed how much I focus on different areas. I have changed the order of topics. Um, I have changed so much about how I teach it because when I first started, I did, you know, like a big section on sounds, so phonetics and phonology. And then I immediately went into the writing system because I'm like, oh, students are going to want to be able to write their language. And so, you know, to me, I was, I guess I was kind of doing it based on, well, if you have your sounds, how are you going to write them in your language? That's a good connection. Now I wait till the end of the semester to talk about writing systems. (laughs) And, you know, we, we spend less time on that area than I used to um, because I really want them to have uh, a really strong structure for their language. So we do much less on the written portion and some of my students don't even create writing systems at all because they're like, it's a spoken language, I don't need one. Um, But we also, I also used to kind of fly through certain (laughs) certain morphological decisions and certain grammatical decisions because I was just trying to get students toes wet but then I realized that, no, they need more time to really let that knowledge sink in because that's really, it's difficult for um, students to learn and apply all of that information at once and to stay true to, oh, wait, you just created this new word, but you don't even have that sound in your language. So it's like, it's a lot of moving parts to balance. So um, in the middle of the semester, I've really slowed down to, to focus on the grammar portion. Um, and that was another thing um, I used to, do word building before I did grammar, which when you start really thinking about it, it made sense for whenever I sat down to do the course. But as you're teaching it, you're like, well, I can't really talk about morphemes and word building until I've introduced, you know, 
what morphemes are, which are connected to grammar, which are connected to, are you having this kind of language or, you know, this other kind of language. And so I realized just how important it was that I approach morphology and syntax earlier in the semester and spend a lot of time letting students explore those areas. Um, and so it truly is how you teach it is going to be dependent on what students you have, their level of awareness of linguistics, their level of awareness of language, how many languages they've studied and so on. Um, but then also what you hope they get out of it. And at the end of the semester, I hope they've felt a, an intense introduction to the, the field of linguistics because um, it's more than just an intro. You do, you get more information. It's a higher level course. You, you may be introduced to this for the first time, but you're going to dive in once you do. <laughs> so I think I really answered about 20 different <laughs> questions there. <laughs> no, no, no. I just let you talk for a while because uh, you were doing very, uh, you were giving a lot of ideas and it's, um, it's very interesting. I, I, it's, uh, I can circle back real quick. Um, it's interesting to say, to hear you say like you started out doing phonetics and phonology and then immediately jumped into writing systems at first and then realized that, no, that's something you can do at the end of the course because, um, if you're teaching linguistics, intro linguistics basically usually doesn't cover writing systems right. because writing is secondary and uh, you, you don't want to really be emphasizing it right, right at the beginning. But uh, so, and also uh, the morphology does affect it because uh, there are like correlations between like how what the for morphology is in terms of the uh, analytic to fusional scale and what kinds of writing systems work. Right, right. Um, yeah, but um, getting back to it, um, obviously this is all, another thing is going to be different for different courses, but uh, what kinds of readings do you use? Do you bring in any outside textbook or anything, or do you like write write the things on your own or, you know, just like what supplemental mm -hmm. materials do you have? Um, so the students, so the last two times I've taught it, including this one, um, are using uh, David Peterson's The Art of Language Invention. And so they do have that. I found it helps if they have something to refer back to that connects with the material that we learn in the classroom. Um, just so they can hear it or read it rather another way. <laughs> and so um, I do like to use a book before that because that one was only published in, was it 2015 or 16? I forget what year it was published, but it's more recent. And so before that, I was using the language construction kit, um, which I still tell my students is an optional resource. They don't have to get it, but um, I do still recommend it because it's, again, another way to read the same information that may click with some students um, more than the other resources. And so I still think that's a, um, a great resource. I just don't want to overwhelm them and have them read five different <laughs> books for the yeah. same thing. Yeah. Uh, Art of Language Creation is 2015, 15. by the okay. way. I just... Uh, I I had my copy on the bookshelf next to me, nice, so I nice. check it. Um, so yeah, so I have those, and then I also develop a lot of um, course materials. I used to, I used to develop a lot more than I do now, and now most of what I give students is through like pretty intense powerpoints that are posted online, that go through you know the concepts and give lots and lots of examples from natural languages, and so um, you know they can read about the definition of you know, what is an infix, but then I give them, you know, lots of examples of here's how they could look in a variety of languages and things you can do. Um, and so I give them a lot of language examples. And then I also do data sets in class of, nat lang of natural languages, as well as some of the homework assignments or them doing data sets, um, again, just to try to get them out of the English frame of mind and into the possibilities. What are, what are the possibilities for how languages put these ideas together? Um, and for that, I use, um, oh shoot, Meriwether. 
Um, I got a lot of my data sets from Meriwether, and now I can't remember the name of the book, it, whether it's just like linguistic data sets or something. Uh, oh. Oh, goodness. I can't even think of it. It's a really great resource because it just it lists data set after data set after data set. And some of them are, are very advanced and difficult, and it covers everything from phonology to syntax. Um, oh, that's great. And now I can't think of what that book is called, but it is Meriwether. Um, I'll think of that probably about 3 a.m. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you if you do think about it, um, then then uh, send that to me. And then uh, maybe maybe I can put the name of it in the in the show notes. I oh, put definitely. citations to things in the show notes, so I can I can link to books. Definitely. We usually, yeah, we usually link to online free materials, but I can right. link to some books well, too. Well, I also the um, oh, the linguistic Olympiad. They have um, so there's an Olympiad they have for linguistic problems for like high school students. And they end up having a lot of really neat data sets. And so that, and they are free. They give you um, like all the past years. Uh, and so you could definitely go through some of those um, and get free ones. Yeah. Uh, another thing I want to ask is like, so your class is one, uh, one that does um, individual projects. Each, each student has their own project, which it's not the only way to do it. I think it's it's the more common way to teach a conlang class right now. But you can have you have it be a whole class project or individual. Um, uh, what product? What what is the product that you expect students to produce? Do they have to translate a text, or is it just like a a grammatical sketch, or or, or what? Do you uh, have them produce? So all students are required to do a grammatical sketch of their language. Um, and so their final paper is that. It's a grammatical sketch. They have to cover all the areas that we've talked about in class and give examples and show what their language does. Um, and those, we work on drafts throughout the semester because essentially the main the main product for the course is just the final paper. And so um, to, to refrain from having students just write the whole thing, you know, the whole thing at the end and find out they needed to be thinking about other features. Um, I have them submit it in drafts. And so, for instance, they've already done their first draft, which described the sounds and how their um, syllables are structured, how the stress patterns work in their language. And so they've already submitted that portion and gotten feedback. So they know, you know, moving into the final draft, the final paper, what they need to, to focus on. Um, and so it is a, a large a large grammatical sketch. Sometimes they turn out to be very long. Um, but then depending on, so the way I teach my course, I use um, this particular course, I use uh, a specifications grading system. And so students actually choose how much work they do. And so if, if they decide the grade they want for the class is a C, then that's all they complete is the grammatical sketch. If they want to be, they need to go one step further and hand in a glossary with um, at least 100 morphemes defined. And they have to be like full definitions, not just single word glosses. They've got to be, you know, thoughtful definitions with, you know, some origins included, some etymologies to show connections and things like that. If they want an A for the class, they have to go one step further and write a short text or... Um, you know, maybe it could be a spoken poem or, or story um, and translate it into their language. And it has to be culture appropriate. And so like some of them write their own creation story um, that their religion may have for their people. Or some of them, you know, um, write something that will work. Because I, I, maybe I hadn't mentioned this yet, but I do have a lot of creative writing students in my course. And so for some of them, they are creating their language to use in a in a novel or a series of poems that they are actually, you know, submitting for their BFA thesis. And so for them, they get to use what they already know they need for their, their language, a, a, a written text that they need in their language and they translate it. So, um, so that is required of all the students who are completing it at the A level. Oh, okay. That's an interesting. I'm. I've not really seen courses like that, but uh, it's interesting to see um, how that works out with the different things. 
I like the idea of including translated text as some part of the assessment because when I like if I am doing conlanging like as you know as the hobby you know I have learned over the years that it really really helps to figure out exactly like what your system looks like to actually be doing translation examples. Right. And you said you said the, the gram- grammatical sketch does require examples. some uh, examples. Yeah, so all, all yeah. students are required to do um, sentences in their language. Um, it's just that the further up you go, the more you have to go from individual sentences that you've translated into your language to, um, you know, like a, a, a full paragraph text, which, I mean, as you know, can be <laughs> overwhelming when all of a sudden you realize you wrote something down that you want to, you know, you roughly want to translate into your conlang and then realize you don't have 8 million words that you need. <laughs> and so you have to really, really think about, you know, what words should I create versus how should I just translate this conceptually differently into my language. And so that, that can be a, a very intense decision. And to prepare them for that, to prepare those students who are going to be doing longer texts to really think about translation and to, to be considerate of the, the culture and the speakers and how they would uh, tell the story, um, we actually do a conlang relay. That's another homework assignment. And so in class, it's a much shorter than a, a full conlang relay because it's just a couple sentences instead of a full thing. Um, but the sentences do work together and they have to, when they get the text, be considerate and say, would my speakers have this word? If not, how would I get around that? And so um, it's that's really exciting to see those results. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's just the same way that we do it in the in the community, just like mm-hmm. hand over their translation to the next person. That's correct. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually the exact same rules that are are posted for that. Yeah. That's great. That's um that sounds like a really great exercise. Also, I think it um will help them learn how to analyze other languages because the the way the conlang really works is you just have some uh like a glossary and some grammar notes and you're just supposed to retranslate it yourself. Exactly. So yeah, they have to learn how to decipher someone else's language. And and not only that, they they see very quickly how to describe a grammatical feature in good ways and in not so good ways because sometimes what they're looking at they're going I don't know what the person meant by this grammatical note and so they just have to go with it but then they go back to their own draft of writing about grammar and they're like oh I need to describe this better (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah the 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 describing things is is difficult yes uh yes uh so that's um yeah that's that's very interesting uh I had another question here like, um, how often do your students come back to you and say that they're still doing conlanging after the course is over? So that, not as many of my students end up continuing being actively involved in conlanging. Um, and so the majority, if they are active in conlanging, they just, they don't talk to me about it. <laughs> so, um, but based on my own um, information from the students who have come back. Um, they aren't necessarily still conlanging, but I get more students out of this class who get excited about language and linguistics in general and go on to do something um, with it, whether it's taking more courses or um, even just coming back and asking more questions or taking a new language because they realized you know, how, how neat it can be to study language. Um, some of them became much more active in Duolingo after the course because they're like, wait, I need to learn how more languages work. Um, and so I see them getting more active in language and linguistics in general. Um, I do have a handful of students, like I had mentioned, my creative writers. They tend to be the ones who stay more active in conlanging because they, again, they're doing this because they create their own worlds on a regular basis. And they, they like, they realize how helpful it could be to walk through the decision process for creating a language to really develop a strong world with strong features that make it, you know, good for developing characters and um, all of those other writing techniques they need to think about. And so 
out of my students is the creative writers who tend to be more likely to continue conlanging. Um, also beyond this course in particular, I see the strongest student relationships being um, fostered and continued even after the class. And that is an amazing thing to see as a teacher because, I mean, just as a simple, for instance, we came back from spring break a week ago, well, I guess this past Monday, and when students walked into the room, it was, hey, how are you? And, you know, hugging. And it was like a little party in our classroom versus the other classes. People are like, oh, hey, it's Monday. What's up? Uh, you know, so it's, it's just a very, very different atmosphere in the classroom. And so there are benefits beyond getting them introduced to conlanging as a field. There are also just the, the added benefits of, I, I don't know what it is about conlanging, but it's quite magical in bringing people together. Yeah. And, and ultimately, your goal is to introduce them to linguistics, right? Right. right? It's not. It's not conlanging. We're concerned a little bit about that on this show because you yes. know this this show is all about conlanging, and I I would love to promote the conlanging as a hobby to more people. But when you're teaching the university class, it's about using conlangs to introduce linguistics concepts, and I. I think that you've sort of shown a lot about how you can do that and also get people excited about language. I like that part right. that, um, you know, people are learning other languages because of the course and learning and learning more about linguistics. Right. And I also am very curious to see um, the effect that Twitter has on my class because this is the first semester that I've required my students to complete Twitter assignments and to communicate. Um, they have peer responses they do, but then they also um, you know, tweet to other conlingers in the larger community. And so I'm very curious to see if that really opens their eyes to um, the larger community and to see if that has any influence on whether they um, continue being interested in conlinging and actively conlinging after the course ends because I think they see that oh really these are everyday people these are real people who just um, as a hobby do this and so actually having experience with communicating with them I, I'm wondering if that will potentially influence um, post-semester conlinging projects. <laughs> well we can hope. I, I'm hoping. But uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it's really very interesting how much in I don't know the past ten years or so that conlanging has been more and more like accepted and like understood and you know right. big properties taking on conlangs has helped with that and just like there's much more general awareness. Yes. The yeah. The, I think there was a time when, you know, it's still not very well known, but there was a time when basically nobody, like, really knew that people create languages. Right. And, like, linguists that, um, a lot of academic linguists that knew about it were kind of dismissive of it. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see what's what's happened now. Well, and I've also, I mean, just seen a shift because whenever I introduced the course, um, the first two times I taught the conlanging course, they were just under like um, course numbers that we had on the books that were for topics, you know, like rotating topics or whatever. And so um, it wasn't until the third time that I taught the course that it was actually under its own course number and it has a specific course title. So it's its own full course on our books. And whenever I had first proposed making it its own full course to my department, I did get you know, people asking, well, is this a legitimate course though? Like, will they actually learn linguistics or what are they really doing in this course? Um, and so, you know, I had to defend wanting to make it a full course. And now, you know, the same colleagues see um, the, the products coming out of students. I had one student actually win a college award for her final project for the class because it was that good. Um, and so they're seeing that not only is it legitimate, but like you can learn a lot just by doing this process. And so now I get people recommending students, well, you should really try to take this course. If it fits with your schedule, you should, you know, go into this course. And so that's an exciting shift to see too. It's, you know, you just show the evidence, I guess, show that this is 
this is worthwhile and a learning experience um, and that you know sometimes we forget that you really can be having fun while learning <laughs> <laughs> and like i think that some of that early sort of reticence to accept it probably came from there's a sort of a an idea in linguistics that we have to take it very seriously that linguistics is a science mm -hmm. because a lot of people don't take it seriously as a science. Right. And like trying to include this frivolous, you know, constructed languages thing is, is damaging to that reputation. But like, when you're using it to teach, it's a very useful thing to to do for teaching. Um, there are even possibilities. I I I have uh, generally been like not that big on like doing research with conlangs for a lot of reasons, but there are certain things where I think that linguists could actually do some research on communities that are conlanging i know uh like christine did that did that um studying the not be community and uh -huh. and uh yeah things like that um yeah so it's in it's it's great that i that things are being taken more seriously and it's great that your course is uh like a just a standard course now yes to show that yes this is an effective way to teach linguistics it doesn't need to be the only way, right. but um, it's definitely one way that will get uh, students excited. Yes, it is. Um, do you have any final sort of notes that you want to go over or things that you want to talk about uh, before we wrap things up? I don't think so. I think we, we covered everything. Um, were there any... Uh, any other questions you had? <laughs> uh, not particularly. I think we covered quite a bit. I, I wanted to keep things focused right now on the uh, the courses that you taught. So, and I think we covered a wide range of uh, stuff related to using conlangs in the classroom. Um, one question I have is, uh, like, do you have like the syllabi for your course online for people to look at? Maybe there are other academics in the audience that want to look at it or uh, or conlangers that want to look at like what what things you use to teach people. Definitely, yeah. Um, so I can, after we're done here, send you a link to it um, because all of our syllabi uh, have to be online. So that makes it kind of handy. Um, but I'll send you a, a direct link to, um, to its location online. And... Um, you can even in that same system go through and look at past syllabi to see how <laughs> how I have changed, how I've taught the course. Um, but yeah, I definitely have that. And um, it, it is a long syllabus because um, like I had mentioned with the specifications, grading is a different thing. And like you had said, you'd never heard of that before. And it is so different that I have to explain what I mean by it um, in great depth to students. Um, you know, what it means to be a certain bundle and what it means to you have to meet these guidelines or you have to, to do more assignments if you want to get the higher grade. Um, and so it's a lot of information to take in, but you definitely get a course schedule to see, you know, how the readings from uh, David's book line up with what we're doing in the classroom um, and what kind of you know, smaller everyday assignments we have and how they, they all work together. Because, I mean, essentially, and I tell students this too, um, from day one in the class, every assignment that I have them do about their language is a decision they're making that will show up in the final paper. And so, you know, every tweet they've sent, they've sent out examples in their language. You know, I tell them, get feedback on them and use those examples in your paper. So, you know, they'll continue um, adding to that repertoire as we continue the semester. Um, but all those, everything that they produce for our class is the expectation is that's going to show up somehow, some way in your, your final paper. Yeah, that's, that's a great point to have because um, if you're doing like a, an individual 
project that's supposed to go through the whole class, then that that makes sense that like every sort of step along the way is a step toward you completing. And that's that's not just about like teaching linguistics or teaching conlang, but that's about that that teaches them a little bit if they want to go on to like grad school, like how to handle like mm-hmm. The big projects you have to do. Yes, where you have just one project for a whole semester, and your grade is that project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so, yeah, I think we can wrap this up. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yeah, and uh, maybe you can come on again. Excellent, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to talk send this out to our listeners like uh would you if you've you're in college would you like to t- take a conlanging class if you're if you were in college do you wish you had a conlanging class or did you take a conlanging class and like for the few listeners that are actual ac- academics like what would you teach in a conlanging class and how would you go about it or do you have an interest now if you haven't in in creating one uh so uh with that uh we're going to wrap up the show thank everyone for listening and happy conlanging thank you for listening to conlangery you can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com conlangery is supported by our listeners Thank you to Margaret Ransdell-Green, Graham Hill, Ezekiel Fordsmender, and all our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash conlangery. Conlangery is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share Alike license. You are free to use or adapt our work for any non-commercial purpose as long as you credit Conlangery Podcast and release any derivative works under the same license. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our site was designed by Bianca Richards, and our theme music is by Null Device. <laughs>